Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. This episode contains graphic depictions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is advised. It's the 7th of May, 1929, nearly two years since gangster Norman Brune was gunned down in the inner-city Sydney suburb of Surrey Hills. The man who tried to interfere with the stronghold Tilly Devine and Kately had on East Sydney had failed, and he paid with his life in the process. But two years on from his death, and the streets are still dripping with the blood of Razor victims. With or without Norman Brune, chaos still reigns on the streets of Darlinghurst. Tilly's brothel empire is raging and locals still can't get enough of Kate Slygrog. But there's another organised crime kingpin in town. His name is Phil Jeffs. And in King's Cross, if you're looking for somewhere to gamble or something to snort, he's your man. Phil fancies himself as Australia's very own Al Capone. Smartly dressed, well-spoken, he might look the part, but Phil Jeffs isn't to be trusted. Phil runs the fourth floor of a building on William Street, Woolloomooloo, called the 50-50 Club. It's a den of debauchery, where police take back alley payments to turn a blind eye to rife prostitution and drug dealing. It's inside the 50-50 club where he's been cheating his suppliers. The cocaine on the streets of East Sydney is being cut with washing powder, boric acid and other substances. Diluted. It means the likes of Tilly's girls and Kate's standover men are being sold an adulterated product. It means Phil Jeffs is ripping them off. The rival gangs have found out about Phil's tricks, and they want blood. So in scenes reminiscent of a Hollywood western, angry gangsters challenge Phil and his men to settle their dispute on the streets of King's Cross. It's just after 10pm in Eaton Avenue, a shadowy street off Bayswater Road. It's no mistake these gangs are gathered here. Eaton Avenue is better known as Blood Alley by locals. A notoriously rough spot where muggings and street brawls are commonplace. The men on Blood Alley know exactly what they've come for. And it's not just cutthroat razors to fear. Whatever they can get their hands on, boots, clubs, bricks, all fly through the air. Many of the men are heavily armed. And for 30 long minutes, gunfire illuminates this dimly lit patch of King's Cross. Finally, the police arrive. Phil Jeffs escapes by jumping on the back of a car. But the Battle of Blood Alley follows him home. And before Phil Jeffs goes to bed on this chilling May night, gangsters will break into his home and shoot him multiple times 
as Razorhurst continues to live up to its name. This is True Crime Conversations, a Mamma Mia podcast exploring the world's most notorious crimes by speaking to the people who know the most about them. My name is Emma Gillespie, and all month long we've been examining the life and crimes of Kate Lee and Tilly Devine, and the razor wars that turned the streets of Darlinghurst Red under their reign in the 20s and 30s. On the last episode, we learned about how Kate Lee and Tilly Devine's rivalry went from prickly feud to all-out war, as gangsters began to favour inconspicuous cutthroat razors over guns to settle their feuds. This time, in the final instalment in our four-part series, we'll hear from Lee Straw and Larry Ryder about how the razor wars intensified, how Tilly and Kate fought back, what became of those pulling the strings and what finally put an end to the bloodshed. Lee, at the height of these razor wars, people were being disfigured but not necessarily murdered. No one was being held to account, though. Why were these gangs so hesitant to identify their attackers to police? It was the rule of organised crime at the time. It's the silence of the streets, you know. You don't want to identify who has attacked you because there is going to be the repercussions, the fallout from that, that when you get out of hospital, someone's going to come looking for you. You know, you've named the person who's attacked you and this time you might not survive it. So it really was the rule of silence and the code of silence, if you will, of organised crime. And it still exists even today. Do you think police ever tried to persuade Kate and Tilly to turn to become informants, given the wealth of knowledge that they would have had about everything going on on their streets? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, they would have. The police try any number of different tactics and and certainly one of them would have been to try and get Kate to turn on Tilly or Tilly to turn on Kate or, you know, to reveal the inner machinations of the gang life. But they weren't successful because there was also an element of where Kate Lee and Tilly Devine just didn't trust the police as well. So they knew exactly what they were doing. There was a story that Kate had been an informant for the police, but Kate's family have never really liked that story because they felt that that didn't really fit with who she was and how she conducted her business. But I think that both Kate and Tilly would have given the police some information when it best suited them, you know, when they could get themselves out of a charge or out of some kind of association with another crook and then not be done for consorting. Even though a lot of the time it was their gangs, their men doing the heavy lifting and and the violence, what about Kate's later years in terms of time in prison? Was she ever put behind bars during that razor war time? Yeah, she was. And one of the great stories is that, in fact, it was Lillian Armfield who was Australia's first unranked female detective. She was heading up the women's police with just a small number of other women who worked in that part of the police force. They were not amalgamated into the police force. They were separate. So you had the women's police and Lillian Armfield, also a country girl. This is where it's interesting. Kate Lee and Lillian Armfield were very similar because of their country background, because they were quite strong, independent women, but they're on opposite sides of the law. So the police through the late 1920s had been trying to nab Kate Lee with cocaine. If they could get her with cocaine, they get her for possession, 
they could put her away for at least six months. They could push for a bit longer, but at least six months she'd be out at Long Bay, she'd be off the streets. And the hope was that if you can take these leaders of organised crime out, then the business itself starts to fall apart. But we know, of course, that trying to get the so-called big people of organised crime, it doesn't end organised crime. However, the story goes is that Kately's in her house in Surrey Hills and there's a police raid is conducted. And during this police raid, a number of detectives walk in and Kate's sitting at a table playing cards with some of her friends. So there's a bit of a tip-off there, right? She's expected people to come in. Lillian Ironfield walks in. Kate Lee runs up the stairs. Lillian chases after her. And just as Kate's about to throw a little package into the fire, Lillian manages to nab it and she's got it with cocaine. And there's this sort of look of resignation, I guess, comes over Kate's face in the sense of, all right, you got me with cocaine. So Lillian Arfield was instrumental to being the person who got Kate Lee with cocaine. And what's interesting about their relationship is that later on through the years, Kate would go down to Darlinghurst Police Station and she'd ask for Lil, as she referred to her, and talk to her about some of the problems she had, some of the issues on the streets and some of the girls and women that she was worried about too. So they actually, they didn't ever have a truly friendly relationship but there was kind of this begrudging respect that was there. They were two pretty similar women, just on opposite sides of the law. Larry, in 1929, we had the Battle of Blood Alley, the Battle of Kellett Street. It seems things were really intensifying on the streets of East Sydney. Can you tell me about the relationship between organised crime and police at this time? There was a very strong police commissioner called Mackay, and he brought in police women, the first police women one of whom I actually interviewed when I was doing my research for the book, who arrested Tilly and Kate a number of times. But he was a good commissioner. He had things like radios put in police cars and call boxes on the street and so forth. But on a local level, there was certainly a feeling which may have extended to the police commissioner that let's contain the crime to the poor areas, to the inner east. It's a lost cause anyway. So if we can contain all of these criminal enterprises to Darlinghurst, King's Cross, Surrey Hills, Woolloomooloo, Paddington, will be able to keep a handle on it. If someone gets shot dead or whatever, yes, we'll investigate and we'll do it. But just sort of crimes that were not as terrible as those, they tended to turn a blind eye to. And the other thing was that Tilly and Kate were an incredibly valuable source of information to the police. They were telling each other but they also knew what was going on in criminal Sydney. And they had a very strong relationship with police such as Ray Blissett, who was another one who I spoke to before he died. Ray Blissett was a a real hands-on street cop, and they all loved him. Bumper Farrell as well was the same a little bit later. They were sort of tough but fair. They knew where Tilly's brothels were. They knew where all the slag grog shops were, but they didn't close them down because they knew they'd just pop up somewhere else and they didn't want them popping up in Mossman or Burwood. When did the tide begin to turn with police power? Obviously, you know, they got, they got control of their city back eventually. What changed? In 1930, Police Commissioner Mackay introduced what were called the consorting laws. And these laws, they were brought in and what they did was if a policeman saw two people or ten people or whatever on the street with a criminal record talking to each other. They could have been talking about last week's football game or whatever. If two people were seen on the street consorting, they could be hauled off and charged with consorting and put in jail. So that stopped the gangs from forming and got the gangs off the streets. And then 
There was also a law brought in anyone attacking someone else with a razor got a minimum six months jail and a flogging. So that was a deterrent to people carrying razors. But it was more getting the gangs off the streets, which stopped that mass gang warfare like the Kellett Street riot. That probably would never happen again. But the other thing that brought the gangs to an end was the war. It was a little later in 1939, the war broke out and the gangsters went off to fight. What about how Tilly and Kate were represented in the press? How did the tabloids of the day perpetuate the image of gangsters? They sold papers. Tilly and Kate were often on the front page or in the court section or their comings and goings and the various crimes they committed were all reported on. And they were photographed quite often as colourful underworld identities. But the truth, 1928, it's editorial at the height of the Razor Wars. It goes like this. Razorhurst, Gunhurst, Bottlehurst, Dopehurst. It used to be Darlinghurst, one of the finest quarters of a rich and beautiful city. Today it is a plague spot where the spawn of the gutter grow and fatten on official apathy. By day it shelters in its alleys, in its dens, the underworld people. At night it looses them to prey on prosperity, decency and virtue and to fight one another for the division of the spoils. This newspaper demands that Razorhurst be swept off the map and the Darlinghurst we knew in better days be restored. It demands new laws and new strength for their enforcement and it points for convincing and horrifying evidence to the crimes already to Razorhurst's discredit. Recall the human beasts that lurking cheek by jowl with decent people live with no aim, purpose or occupation but crime. Bottle men, dope peddlers, razor slashers, sneak thieves, confidence men, women of ill repute, pickpockets, burglars, spielers, gunmen and every brand of racecourse parasite. Razorhurst grows more and more undesirable as a place of residence for the peaceful and industrious. Unceasingly, it attracts to its cesspool every form of life that is vile. The tabloids especially loved these kind of stories because you've got two women that you can set up. You can create an image of Eastern Sydney as rife with crime. It's the Chicago as the South as it was referred to. And then you sensationalise it. By doing that, you create the sensational story and everybody wants to tune into it. People are opening up the newspapers and they're reading about the violence on the streets. And it's very true that there is violence on the streets, but it was sensationalised and it was, in all honesty, you've got Kate Lee and Tilly Devine who also have their favourite press photographers that they go to. So they'll take flattering photographs and they'll get their dogs in the photograph and their car and all that kind of stuff. They had the journalist that they would prefer to talk to who would then share the story, of course, in the newspapers. But the tabloids of the day create this, the story's there. What I'm trying to get at is the story is already there, but what the tabloids do is that they sensationalise that story and they turn it into something that's almost of a spectacle. And it comes to be known not just in Sydney, but it's known across the country and certainly internationally. Yeah, you can really see that around the world in how that era has been glamorised, thinking Mm. of, you know, people doing the worst of the worst to each other. But we have this sort of rose-coloured lens of prohibition and excitement. Yeah, you're right. It was just so violent. We've got to be careful. We don't glamorise it and glorify it. And I've always been a bit careful with that and telling these stories too because, It's like your Al Capones, you know, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. This is contemporary to this period in Sydney as well, being called the Chicago of the South. That's not any kind of mantle you really want to take up as a city. You know, that's actually really problematic. And so in telling the stories of Kate Lee and Tilly Devine, we also have to acknowledge they were very violent women. And the violence that was meted out, they knew about, they were associated with 
Did Kate's prison stint shake anything up really or was she able to still operate from inside for those few months? Yeah, she was still able to operate. That's the reality of organised crime is that you can't just take out one key figurehead. You have to actually properly dismantle the whole business itself. And so she would have her visitors, she'd pass on information, they would bring her information and she's keeping a close eye on what's going on. But she also has the people who worked for her too, who were able to keep the business going while she was doing time. You're listening to True Crime Conversations with me, Emma Gillespie. I'm speaking with Razor author Larry Reiter and historian and author Lee Straw about the East Sydney Razor gangs of the 1920s and 30s. When did the Razor Wars come to the most intense sort of head? Was it something like the Battle of Blood Alley, Battle of Kellett Streets? When was the real turning point and what changed? How did we eventually restore peace and how did police stop these gangs? Look, the real period of the Razor Gang violence, the main period of it was from about 1927 to 1930. And it's generally agreed that by 1930, things start to calm down a little bit. Okay, you've got, as you say, the violence that's happening in the alleys. You've got the gangs that are meeting up. You've got the violence that's meted out. You've got Norman Bruin who's killed. You've got Snowy Prendergast who's shot in Kate's house. I mean, that's kind of at the end of that period. But in terms of the razor war violence, what ultimately brings it to a closure is that the police bring in the consorting laws and that starts to stamp out the violence because the consorting laws, what they essentially mean is that if you are caught with another known criminal on the streets near them in the vicinity of that person, you can be charged and convicted with consorting and you can face up to six months in prison. And so Kate and Tilly both are done for consorting along with many other people who work for them. So it's then difficult to, I guess, with the razor wars to have those fights in the alleys or to meet up because the police are doing their regular walks along the place. They're walking the beat and they're trying to catch out those who are associated with each other. And I guess in the end, it really was that the consorting laws had had a huge impact on the razor war violence. But I think also there was a level of where both Kately and Tilly Devine realised there had to be some form of a truce to end the violence because they were losing people in their gangs. They were seeing the violence firsthand. They were seeing those who were disfigured with the violence as well. And it's not good for their business. They want to keep going in the sly grog or the prostitution or the cocaine dealing business. And this kind of violence is bringing attention to them. You know, it's bringing too much press attention, too much police attention, and it's getting out of hand. What about sly grog? How long before that 6pm rule was scrapped and obviously, you know, would that have had enormous impacts on the business of Kate Lee? Yeah, I guess that was another thing that the, I guess the police and the politicians realised that the 6pm closure wasn't necessarily doing what they wanted it to do. It was certainly a, an effort that was brought in during World War One to temper the amount of drinking and then after World War One, obviously to limit the amount of drinking of the returned servicemen. There was more of a perspective of trying to look at how best to look after those servicemen and their families beyond just closing the pubs and, and limiting drink. Certainly it's 
it's still around. The 6pm closure is around during World War II. It's into the 1950s. And as a temporary measure, it was temporary during World War II, but it actually lasted until 1966. So even until the 1960s, we had that early closure of the pubs. So that essentially means that Kate was still making money out of Sly Grog until the 1960s well, the early 1960s, but by that stage, she's of an older age, she's very unwell. I think really she probably remained in the game until the 1950s. She still had florist shops, right? So she still said, oh, I, I run a florist. And we all know that's just a cover. Yes, there's flowers, but the booze is at the back of the place. So she still sold Sly Grog into the 1950s, but it wasn't the business that it had been. It just wasn't. Things were changing. Sydney was changing. People were moving out of the areas, other people moving in. There's different crime bosses that are moving in too. So, yeah, I think the closure is until the 1960s. In the 20s and 30s, you know, at the peak of Kate and Tilly's reign over East Sydney, they're seen on the covers of newspapers, adorned in furs and diamonds and this real sort of glamour and wealth and excess. By the end of their lives, though, that money kind of dries up. What happened to their wealth. Well, what happens is that the authorities here in Australia, they start to get really wise around how to properly deal with organised crime, crime bosses, people who are at a higher level of the criminal business. They, again, to go back to the, it's the seminal case, it's Al Capone. How did you get Capone? It wasn't about really targeting the whole business. It was about getting Capone on tax evasion. And so what essentially happens with both Kate Lee, especially Kate, but also Tilly Devine, is that the tax man comes knocking. And so the tax department says, hey, you've not put in your returns for any number of years. We want that money back. And also by the mid-30s, Tilly and Kate were getting on. Kate was born in 1881, so she was in her 50s. And it had been a hard life and she was losing a little bit. And Tilly certainly was, although she was only in her 30s, she too was losing her impact and then you get these other younger nasty criminals moving into the cross in the east and doing what they'd not been able to do before and virtually running Tilly and Kate out of business and for the rest of their lives they operated on a much reduced scale they weren't the kingpins anymore Abe Saffron was or you know those other people that came in later during the war years to take advantage of the American servicemen in the cross and they started running all the slag grog and prostitution. Tilly and Kate were marginalised but they kept on keeping on until the tax man got them in the 50s and virtually took everything that they had. Did the Wall Street crash and the Great Depression impact Kate and Tilly's businesses? No, it was too local for that but I guess what it did do was that with unemployment there wasn't the money to spend on illegal alcohol. There wasn't the money to spend on prostitution because people were on the breadline. And it was then that the wives and the partners of men who had left home to try to find work worked themselves as prostitutes. So it happened in that way. Factories closed down, people were unemployed, breadlines were on the street, people died of starvation in the Inner East. Yeah, so the Great Depression certainly had an effect. It also made people more desperate, which meant that they were prepared to take chances to rob somebody in the street or do things that they normally would never do. That fall from grace seems so difficult to imagine for two women who, you know, in, in the 20s and early 30s were adorned with fur coats, diamond rings, the best oh. of everything. 
to then fast forward to the 50s, as you mentioned, for them to lose everything, do you think they would have ever imagined their lives taking that turn? They must have realised when business started falling off in the late 30s and 40s that their heyday was coming to an end. But they were ever optimistic. They were always looking for for a new thing or, you know, a tough new gangster to join them and a new business opportunity or something to do. But they were both profligate with their money. They both in a good way because they they spent a lot of money on war bonds during the Second World War. Tilly was always sending money back home to her family. That might have been a Frederick thing as well. She might have felt guilt about Frederick and so she sent a lot of money home there. But if anybody in Sydney was down on their luck, they they always paid. Tilly went back to London about half a dozen times during her great years. And she was in London for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth in 1953. She'd been to Paris to get her hair done and she stood in the mall while the carriages rolled up to Buckingham Palace, which is an interesting little sideline. She was there with her second husband and uh, they came back to Sydney and he died soon after of cancer. And she died of cancer too eventually. Long way to go for a haircut. A long way. Yeah, that's what she would do. She would, you know, she would be photographed on the big ocean liners and there'd be streamers all around her and she'd be waving people goodbye. Yeah, they lived a big life. They had cars and she had a, an enormous house in uh, Maroubra with chandeliers and a grand piano and the state-of-the-art wireless and she had big parties there. She, she spent like it was going out of style. And then the taxman came and virtually took everything. They hadn't filed a report since about 1929. Wow. So, yeah, they were ripe for the picking. And they came in and they took everything. They went through the house. They emptied out packages of flour thinking that they might be concealing rings or that sort of thing. And the same for yeah. Kate? Yeah, the same for Kate. Kate ended up living in poverty in that she had a house in Devonshire Street. And Kate was very religious, St. Peter's is just down the road. And she was living in poverty in this dark little flat, trying to sell a bit of slag grog. But then in, I think it was 56, the government rescinded the 6pm closing and pubs could open until 10. So that meant there was no source of income for her anymore anyway. Tilly and Kate lived arguably long lives for people in their line of work. Kate died yeah. in her early 80s. Tilly was 70. Yes. Born and dying impoverished and the mm. huge wealth in between. What was their staying power? They were just forces of nature, I suppose. That's a bit of a cliche, but they were always optimistic. From what I can understand, they were never brought down by circumstances. They got put in jail. They served their time. They came out bigger and better with a whole bunch of new schemes. And of course, they were supplying a service that was in great demand. I mean, people wanted to have a drink after six. People wanted to have sex with a sex worker. They wanted to buy cocaine. There was a desire for the things they were selling. And I guess that sustained them to a, a great extent. With the altruism thing, though, that there's a photograph in Razor, in my book, of Kate on the balcony of her terrace house in Lansdowne Street in Surrey Hills. And it's Christmas, and there's all these people in the street all waving to her from down in the street. Standing beside Kate is a henchman dressed as Santa Claus and he's throwing presents down from this sack and the presents were goods that had been shoplifted from David Jones and Mark Foyes. So she was resourceful. They were resourceful as, as well. But they enjoyed the life. They enjoyed doing what they did. They could have quit and gone to live in the country like Phil Jeffs did. When he got shot, he went to live on the Central Coast. But they stayed in their milieu and kept what they did 
albeit at a reduced scale, when the downturn came. But they were both, you know, Tilly was married again. She was alone at the end of her life. Kate was alone too. She got married a couple of times, but she got married to old gangsters and nothing ever lasted with her. She had a daughter, Eileen, who she loved, but Eileen kind of disappeared off the radar and just receded into anonymity. I work in Woolloomooloo, recording this right now, just across the road from a bar called Love Tilly Divine. Oh, right. Okay. What of the legacies <laughs> of these two women? Do you think they've left their mark on this city? Who would have thought? Who would have thought? When Kate died, the church was packed and traffic stopped and the deputy police commission spoke and everything. And so she was fated. But Tilly, when she died, no one wanted to know. They wouldn't even sort of throw in for a wreath at the tradesman's arms, which is the pub she drank at. When Tilly died, Ron saw in the Telegraph, wrote an obituary that Tilly was a vicious, grasping high priestess of savagery, venery, obscenity and whoredom, one of the most frightening creatures spewed up by the Razor Gangs, who was charged with everything from consorting to malicious wounding, from indecent language to attempted murder. She was a wretched woman, and she was wretched, definitely, but she was also resilient, because who would have thought that there'd be a book about her? Who would have thought that... There'd be a TV series and a wine bar and plays and musicals and things. I think she'd be looking up or looking down or wherever she is and thinking, you know, wow, that's as good as I was. They're just giving me my just dues. She probably would have thought, and that woman who plays me on TV is not nearly as beautiful as I am. She would have thought that for sure. (laughs) My last question for you, through all of their fighting and, you know, trying to kill each other essentially for decades, Did Tilly and Kate ever become friends? Was there ever peace there between them? There was a peace. There was a begrudging peace. One of the picture magazines at the time, this magazine went around and organised this photo thing between them and they're, they're hugging each other in, I think it's Kate's house, and they've both got these really suspicious looks on their faces as though one was going to stab the other in the back. But they did that and they sat down and they allowed themselves to be photographed for the popular magazines, hugging each other. But it's a very staged-looking shot. But it's a lovely picture too in its way. But when Kate died, Till said, oh, yeah, look, I miss her. You know, she was – we used to chase each other around the streets of Woolloomooloo, but, you know, there's a grudging respect there. It's a less, less exciting, interesting place now without her. Thank you for listening to this special season of True Crime Conversations, The Razor Wars. True Crime Conversations is a Mamma Mia podcast produced by Gia Moylan. I'm Emma Gillespie. 